The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. So as I was reflecting about um, moms, parents, uh, just the role of parents, the role of mothers, I was thinking about it like this. I think at its truest state, being a mom is an act of heroism. Being a mom is an act of running to the need at the cost of self-sacrifice. There's something inside, inside parents, I think, in, in its truest form, but especially inside moms. There's something inside that drives a parent, and especially a mom, to be willing to do whatever it takes for their child. And so, of course, that can be an impulse that can be broken. That's an impulse that can get beaten down. But in its truest sense, that is, I think, at the core of being a parent and being, being a mom. And so I, I got a, a, a taste of that, just a simple moment this past week as a parent of what that inner drive, that inner compulsion is, what that deep down bond is with the child that kind of surges through us, that makes us as parents just so compelled to run to our our children in a time of need. And it just, again, just a a quiet moment, but just powerful for me and just caused me to reflect. Um, I was, one morning, I was going in to wake up our youngest. Rebecca and I have three kids. Our youngest is uh, Little Hope, she's four. And I was going in her room to wake her up um, for the day. And I love waking up my kids first thing in the morning, especially like when they're really, really little. Because I open the door, it's dark, there's just a little bit of light. I walk up and I just see them there in their beds, okay? And like, they're just so peaceful, so beautiful, so vulnerable. And there's there's this part of me that wants to like, scream and make a lot of noise and just terrorize them. But I, I, I kind of restrain that impulse, okay? Because I'm not a monster, all right? But I walk in and I just, uh, you know, the earlier, you know, a couple days ago, I'm, I'm walking in, I just see little Hope there just laying there, just so cute, so precious, like a little princess. And I just stand there um, watching her sleep until I realize how creepy that is, okay? <laughs> and I realize if she woke up right now and I'm just like, hello, you know, it's like... <laughs> She needed therapy for a long time. So I decided, I stood there right up until the creepy point, okay, and then I just leaned down, and I just rubbed her arm just really gently, and then she kind of rolls over, and she scrunches, and then she stretches out, and then she's kind of blinking her eyes, and she sees the outline of me, she knows it's me. So she reaches her two arms up, and I reach down, and I pick her up. And then, you know, especially, you know, little four-year-olds, they have this way, you know, like much older, and it's like, like moving like your house. I mean, you're trying to like lumber along with this large child, but right at that, you know, two, three, four-year-old, they just know how to perfectly kind of like ooze onto your body, right? And so Hope finds that like perfect place to lay her head down on my shoulder, okay? She reaches her two little arms around. I feel her two little hands on my back. And it's just, there's just this feeling of just such affection, you know, in that just simple moment because it's me, carrying my daughter out of the room. And there's just, it's just this beautiful parental moment because in this place, it's like she's at a place that's home. Like she's at a place that's safe. There's like this 
perfect trust. It's like, I belong here, like in your arms. I belong here. It's safe. It's trust. And there's this bond. There's this bond that happens between a parent and a child that it's just compels. It's this compulsion from the inside out. Like I don't have to, to stop and be reminded like, like, okay, like I'm, I'm supposed to like care for my children. Like, of course that can get broken in someone, but I think in its truest sense, like there's something that's coming in from the inside out that compels a parent to care for their child, to, to rescue their child, to protect their child. And that's why it's not uncommon. You see these headlines about a mom running back into a burning building to save her children or fighting off a wild animal or lifting something absurdly heavy to like save their child. There's this heroism that is inside a parent to, that rises up from the inside to protect a child because that's in essence what it means to be a hero. Like what, what heroes do is that when there's a need or a crisis, they run to it. They run into the fire. They run to the need. They run into danger as opposed to what in other ways would, might be more logical you run away, you run out of the burning building, you run away from the danger, run away from the crisis for self-preservation. But what a hero does is runs to the need out of love, not in an attempt to be self-sacrificial, it's out of love that may require being self-sacrificial. That's what heroes do. There's a, a story that Jesus tells, and actually it's probably the most famous story Jesus ever told. He was always telling these stories. He was a storyteller. We call them parables. But he always was telling these stories, and there's one story in particular that is probably the most famous story he ever told, and it's a story about being a hero. It's about a hero, someone who runs to the crisis, and he tells the story because he's calling each one of us to do what heroes do. I want you to look at what this passage says. It's in uh, Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible or Bible app, open to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. Here's what it says. <clears throat> and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now let's just walk through this, this interaction. Jesus is about to tell his, this, his story, but let's just walk through this initial interaction because it's important to why Jesus sets up the story. There's a, a person that approaches him, and when it says lawyer, it's not talking about like a civic lawyer, a civil lawyer. It's talking, this is a religious leader. He's going to ask him questions uh, not about the local laws, the city laws, county laws, state laws, whatever. He's going to be, he, he wants to ask him about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. This is like a, this would be like a scribe is another way that these individuals 
are described. They work with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They work with the priests and the Levites, and they're always kind of picking apart the different parts of the law that God gave through Moses, like how do you precisely follow the law? So he's think more of a religious elite rather than uh, what we think when we think of the, a lawyer in our context. He's a religious elite. And he asks Jesus, this is a, a very religious person, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is, in essence, the question all religion tries to answer, right? What do I have to do to get to heaven? Or paradise? Or nirvana? Or whatever, whatever it is. Like, tell me what to do so I can get there and you have a religion. Like, all religions are trying to answer that question. What do I have to do to get to heaven? Now, He's testing Jesus because he's, a, I mean, he's like a religious elite. If he can't answer that question about his own religion, like he obviously doesn't know very much. So Jesus knows this. He says, you study the law, what does it say? And true to form, he summarizes the Old Testament law, the Moses' law, the, God, the law that God gave through Moses. He summarizes it very well. In fact, he's very similar to how in another place Jesus uh, unpacks and summarizes the entire Old Testament law. He says, okay, I know the answer to that. And he's pulling from a part in Deuteronomy. He says, love the Lord your God. You know, he probably got like all religious and super spiritual. He probably changed his vocal inflection and used like fancier words. Oh, well, of course, if you're asking me, now that I've got an audience, Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, probably said it super religiously. And uh, Jesus says, probably trying not to roll his eyes, he said, uh, yeah, why are you asking me then if you know it so well? He says, exactly, go do it and you will live. Now, when Jesus says, go do it, we have whole sermons of Jesus expositing, explaining the Old Testament law. In fact, his most famous ser sermon, Sermon on the Mount, does just that. And when he says, go do it, here's what he means. He means, go do it perfectly. He says, like, the path to eternal life, he says, is the straight and narrow path. Few can do it perfectly. And he says, by the way, in, in this other sermon, you have to follow the law better than all these scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. Like, you have to do it better than them. Like, you have to do it perfect, because God is holy. And remember what it says in the Old Testament, be holy as, as I am holy. Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be good enough, what do you do to get to heaven? You are holy like God is holy. And you get to the end of how Jesus teaches these passages, and you say, whoa, there's nothing I can do to get to heaven. Like, I can't do enough. I've already messed up. Like, there's already been a time when I didn't make God the most important thing in my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like, there's already a point in time where I put my own comfort before God or my own goals before God or I tried to use God to achieve my hopes and dreams rather than bring all of them under submission to him. Like, there's times that I, I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. There's been times I've been biased towards my neighbor or hateful towards my neighbor or unforgiving and bitter towards my neighbor or self-centered towards my neighbor. Like there's plenty of times that I haven't loved God perfectly and loved others perfectly. And so when Jesus says, go do it, 
to earn your way to eternal life, he means do it perfectly. In fact, that's the whole reason Jesus came. Jesus ultimately said something different than any religion. Religion says, what do I do to, etern- to inherit eternal life? Jesus said something fundamentally different. He said, there's nothing you could do because you can't be holy like God is holy. And so we, we hear Jesus teach the law. We say, I'm in trouble. I'm not making it. No one is. I need someone to rescue me. I need a savior. And that's the whole point of Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross. He's paying for our sins so we can be forgiven. He's rescuing us from our sins. So this man loftily describes the law, and Jesus says, okay, you know the law, just go do it. But he knows he can't, right? So how do you stay a super, ultra, fancy, religious person if you, in your heart, the more you study the law, you realize you can't do it? Well, you do this. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? See, here's the, here's the, the problem. He's a, this lawyer, this super religious guy, the scribe, is trying to do enough to get to heaven. But every human can't, can't fight it, can't ignore the fact that, they, that we are not perfect. And so our only move, if we want to stay super religious, we've got to justify ourselves. We have to rationalize ourselves. And the part that he wants to rationalize is he's trying to rationalize the fact that no one can really love others perfectly. And so his way of rationalizing is, well, loving your neighbor is tricky. Because who is my neighbor really? I mean, this person, okay, I need to love that person, but do I really need to love this person? Maybe that person's not technically my neighbor. Why does it work like this? Because if I'm operating as the lawyer is here, as the scribe is here, if I'm operating to be super religious, I have to be constantly in this mode of self-justifying because I have to prove to myself that I'm gonna make it, that I'm gonna get eternal life, that I'm gonna make it to heaven, that I'm gonna be blessed, that God's gonna be on my side. I have to stay in self-justification mode. I have to stay in self-preservation mode and being in self-justifying, self-preserving, self-righteousness is not a recipe to be loving. It's a recipe to be very focused on myself. So he's saying, this is, right on cue for being in this religious mode, he says, but who is my neighbor? So then Jesus tells the story. Again, maybe the most famous story he ever told of all of them. He told a lot. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. All right, let's pause there for a second before we finish out the story. And you may know, you probably know, Uh, how the story ends, but let's not skip over these details because they're so loaded. The path from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very common path. 
Um, it is, was you're walking through mountains around curves. So it was this, this guy being jumped, being beaten up. He gets his clothes taken. He gets his stuff taken. He's left for dead. This is not an uncommon circumstance. It's not an uncommon situation that someone like this would find themselves in uh, as they're traveling, especially on this road that is a very busy road. So then Jesus says, so this guy's left for dead. He says, and what a coincidence a priest comes by. Now, again, this is a very commonly traveled road, so it's not a coincidence that anyone passed by. It's a coincidence that a priest passes by. Why? Well, because it's a priest. Lucky for this guy, surely a priest of all people is going to stop and help him. So the priest is coming by. He says, lucky for the hurt man, a priest comes by. And the priest is walking by, sees the guy, steps over to the side of the road, way on the other side, and just keeps right on going. And he says, and in the same way, I mean, what are the chances? A Levite. Now, who's a Levite? A Levite would work with the priests in the temple. So you're basically talking, like imagine in a modern context, a pastor and someone who works on a church staff, a minister that works on a church staff. He says, a pastor came up, sees the hurting man, goes to the side of the road and walks by. And then a Levite, a minister, walks up, sees the guy moves to the other far side of the road, I don't want to get close to him, and keeps walking by. The crowd's probably shifting a little uncomfortably because the scribe who posed the original question is probably starting to squirm. I mean, Jesus is talking about his people. So then he says this, verse uh, 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's typical like kind of story pattern, right? It's three people, right? So the first guy comes and crosses the other side of the road. Second guy comes, crosses the other side of the road. But the third guy, and it's not the one you'd expect, you know, it was a, a priest first, and then a Levite. Maybe they thought it would be a scribe like this guy. But guy number three, the centerpiece of the story, is a Samaritan. You probably know all the people in Jesus' crowd there, these, the Jewish people, they hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hated them. They were political rivals religious rivals. They believed differently and hated each other for it. They lived near each other but could not reconcile their differences. They said terrible things about each other. They avoided each other. They were hateful for each other. And Jesus picked the person they least wanted to be the good guy and said a Samaritan came and saw him. And here was the difference. Jesus points it out. He said he felt compassion 
and he went to the man. I mean, that's essentially what compassion is. Compa- compassion's not like pulling the heartstrings. Compassion is I'm, I'm, I feel something and it compels me to action. He goes to the man. He binds up his wounds. He, he treats him. He puts him on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn. He puts him in the inn. He cares for his, uh, cares for his needs. And first thing the next morning, he gives the innkeeper two denarii. Now that's a very specific detail. Like why did he not just say, and he gave him some money before he left. He gave him two denarii. Now a denarii is, uh, a denarius would be one day's wage. So if he gave him two, he's paying for how many days? Excellent math, okay. I think I heard one three in there, but that's okay, all right. Just crowd saved you. All right, so there's, so two days. So if he's gonna pay him for two days and he says that he's going to return, on what day then is he returning? The third day, okay. So Jesus sets up this story for some reason where this good Samaritan is returning on the third day, okay? So he says he pays him for the money, he pays him for care for this man out of his own pocket, self-sacrifice, and continues on his journey, and then he's going to return on the third day. Then he says to, um, uh, he says Jesus now at the end of his story, turns to this scribe and says, so you were wondering this really confusing thing on, on who to love. I know that's a tricky one. Who's your neighbor? So which of the three, I gave you three options, which of them loved their neighbor? And he notice he says, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't bring his mouth to form the syllables that made the word Samaritan. But you know what? That's just playing right into Jesus' hands. Perfect. Go and show mercy. Exactly. Don't just mercifully feel mercy and go to the other side. Show mercy, have compassion, go to the need. But who is the neighbor? The neighbor is the person that God brings into our path. Who do we love? The individual with the need that is right in our path. Who's the the, the hero in this story? It's a very clear hero story. This hero is the Good Samaritan. It's now a phrase like we use to this day. Imagine a story so powerful that 2,000 years later, we still, just in common language around the world, talk about Good Samaritans. It's a story that Jesus makes up and tells about a hero and the, here's the, the, the difference. There are three people that come across this hurting man. One goes to the need. The other two go away from the need. They avoid the need. And what's interesting is the two people he picked that avoid their need were religious people. Because there's this, this sub-discussion under the surface. At the surface level, it's really obvious. Like, just show compassion if someone's 
got a need, but there's something underneath it. See, re religious, the religious framework of thinking stems from what do I have to do to be saved, which is in a mode of self-justifying. And if someone, if a priest or Levite, all right, hang with me here. Let me take this one level deeper. If the priest and Levite are traveling to and from Jerusalem, they're either on their way from Jericho up to Jerusalem or leaving Jerusalem on their way back to Jericho. Here is why a Levite and priest would do that. It would have been very obvious to to the people he's sharing the story with. They're either on their way to serve in their assigned temple duty and now uh, leaving home to go there for the season that they're to serve at the temple, or they've just finished their temple duty and they're now going back to their family. So think about it. This priest is on his way and he's like, one of two things. He's like, well, I would stop, but like I'm on my way to the temple. Like I'm serving God. Like I've I'm busy, I'm important, I've got significant things. Surely someone else will show love to this person, but I've got to go because I've, I've got these, this spiritual religious stuff I'm already busy doing. So he goes to the other side and keeps going. Maybe it's the Levite that's leaving. So he's like going back to his family. I'm just trying to get home to my family. And then he sees this person on the side of the road. And he could have easily justified himself. Like, look, I've done my part. I just was at the temple. Like, I'm exhausted. My fam I'm just trying to get home to my family. Like, I've already done my thing. Like, this is someone else's job. And he crosses to the other side of the road. Probably kind of that subtext of that's what happens. If I'm in a, what do I have to do to justify myself? Then I have to prove to myself that I'm, I'm a loving, good person. So that reflex of self-justification. But Jesus is telling a different story under the surface. There is one that came to us to rescue us. And when you know that there's nothing you can do to be saved, and then you say, okay, I need to be saved, I need to be rescued, and you understand that there is one who came to rescue, that's the gospel, that he, Jesus died, we have a rescuer, a savior, Jesus died to save us, that I don't have to justify myself, that my righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus, that by the work of Jesus, I'm forgiven, and I'm, I'm going to heaven based on the work of Jesus. Like That actually gets me out of self-justification, self-preservation mode, and now the love of God fills me to feel compassion, and to respond to needs. Now, there's a particular need. The reason that we're sharing this story is there's a particular need that we're wanting to bring to the attention of our entire church. But let me, before I share that with you, let me just read this one verse where it just says this so succinctly. It's in 1 John chapter 3. It's verse 16. Here's what it says. Very simply, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So simple, look at what he says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. It's very simple. The Bible makes it not complex, not all these nitty gritty questions. Well, who's my neighbor and how much do I have to love them? It's not that. It's, did God bring a need in front of you? Do you have the love of God in you? Pour that love of God out and meet that need. We can either go to the crisis, to the problem, to the urgent need, 
or go to the other side of the road. Okay, why are we entering in? Why, why are we talking about this? Why are we starting a, a, a series on this? There's an urgent need in our city right now. And I want to bring it into our space right in front of us. Like I want us to all run across it. So it's now in, in the road for us. And that urgent need is the children in our city, very specifically. But let me give you the back story here. About a month ago, a little over a month ago, I met with um, the, a couple of the main leaders, the, the president and a couple of the other main leaders of Four Kids of South Florida. Now, Four Kids of South Florida is an organization that we together here at City Rev, we financially support, we partner with other volunteer op, uh, initiatives. Um, so when, when your family, when my family, when we give to City Rev, when we give to our church, part of that is going to support Four Kids, among a number of other agencies in, uh, in, our, in South Florida. Four Kids in particular, their passion, their heartbeat is to find um, a home for every child. That's their drive. They are specifically raising up Christian families that will are equipped and licensed to take in children in their time of crisis into their homes to foster them through that season of need and crisis and pour out God's love. It's like if there's a child in need, can't stay in their home, they, why would any other home in the city, why should they get it other than a home that's got the stable, grounded love of the gospel pouring out in the supportive community for a church. So these leaders from Four Kids, they asked myself and another pastor, um, uh, Pastor John Ellswick, you all know John, he um, uh, leads our, our, our sister church, Crossway. And uh, they said, hey, can we talk with you guys? I want to ask you some, some questions. And we're like, okay, absolutely. Anything you guys need, we love what you're doing. So we sit down and they proceeded to tell us that right now in our city, and particularly, um, especially Broward, but also in Dade, they said, we have never had quite the need for foster parents that we do right now. And we said, well, what do you mean? Like, are, are the numbers of like kids that are removed, like, is that skyrocketing? And they said, no, it's, the, it's actually not skyrocketing. Um, it's that our available homes are at maybe a record low in the last couple of years. We're like, really? And like, we're hoping you would help us understand, you know, what, what, what's going on like that we would have such, uh, you know, trouble recruiting Christian homes. And so we began to talk about it. We had some ideas and we committed to praying about it. But I said, okay, but help me understand, like, What's like, what are you, what do you mean like there's, uh, there's a need? Well, he said, um, well, let me put it like this. He says, there, the city is calling for kids with children like they're supposed to do. They're calling for kids and they're saying, hey, we have a child or a sibling group that needs a home. Do you have a home? So they're essentially calling, asking for a Christian home to put these children in. And at this point, uh, four kids is having to say, no, we, we don't have a home. So these children may go to some other home in our city or they go into a shelter. 
And um, I said, like, well, like, what are you, like, what do you mean? Like, give me real numbers. And I asked him for real numbers. He said, in April, four kids had to turn away 57 children. And I said, like, give me real numbers. What are we talking about? They said, uh, right now in, um, in Broward, there's 176 children in shelters it's today. In Dade, it's like 125 children in, in shelters. And now some of those will, um, about half of those need a foster home. And those in shelters, others maybe they, they're just waiting on a, on a relative, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent. Others have such high needs, maybe medically or mentally, like they have higher needs and so they need more specialized care. But about, about half of them um, are in a shelter and need a, a Christian home. And so we began to talk. I'm like, okay, like help me understand what are what are you saying? Like, what's the the solution? And they said, um, look, he said, it's like, like how many homes do you need? Like, what are we talking here? Like, how many homes do we need? And they said, well, that's a complicated number because it's always a revolving door. There's current foster families that reunite. Their kids are about to get reunited. Some of them are getting adopted. Like, there's this there's kind of a revolving door. But like, essentially, with all that revolving, to keep up with the need. What we need is uh, 44 homes in Broward. If we had 44 new homes, 16 of which can take in a sibling group, if we had 44 homes in Broward, um, that would actually help us meet up with the need. I'm like, okay, like, I thought you were going to say like 700, like you're saying it's 44. And then, you know, the backlog of kids in, in uh, the shelter as well. But what we need is, is 44 kids, uh, 44 homes in Broward. And they've just, four kids has just opened up in Dade. They're working up in Dade and their, their goal is 10 homes in Dade County. He says, that's the need. And I was struck talking 54 homes would keep up with the demand right now. And I was thinking to myself, surely the entire church of South Florida can manage 54 homes. Like surely they, we, they can manage 54 homes. And I was struck by that. And then I realized maybe the problem, and as we discussed it as a team and as, as pastors in the community, maybe the challenge is that just Christian families are not aware. Like they're just not on the road where there's the hurting person. You know, there's just unaware of the need. And so we're walking through this series, making the, the aware of the need. Right now is a national foster care awareness month and churches um, are making the church body aware of the need. Now you say, you know, okay, Pastor Roby, you know, we care about the city. Like, why this particular issue? Like, why are we focusing on this particular issue so much? There's three reasons why foster care is so closely associated to our hearts. Here's the first. It is one of the most incredible missions opportunities we could possibly have. We're bringing the mission field into our homes. They're, we're bringing them into our homes to show them the love of Christ and expose them to the Christian community. At the point, <clears throat> not only a child, <clears throat> excuse me, but at their point of the season of life that is their greatest need. But secondly, right now in our city, it is of tremendous urgency. Um, it's a great opportunity and it's, it's hugely uh, urgent. And fourthly, um, 
when God puts an opportunity before us, we go towards the need. It's um, part of the reason why foster care is because through these last couple months, through these discussions, we've realized this particular issue of foster care is so centrally re uh, um, associated with city transformation in general. How, what, how we as a city and how we as a church respond to these children in their time of crisis affects city transformation in many ways we would not expect. So here's what I want you to see. I want you to see one of those men that we met with there is a good friend of mine, Andrew Holmes. And I want you to hear, we asked him, asked him some of these questions over video and would love for you to hear what he said about this. Direct your attentions over to the screens. So my background uh, before I came to Four Kids was actually doing investigations for the Sheriff's Office, Broward Sheriff's Office. And being an investigator for the Sheriff's Office, being the person that literally has to make the decision on whether or not a person can keep their biological child or that biological child has to end up in foster care, it really taught me a lot about the need for church and people who know and love Jesus to really step in. It's almost like it was like a perfectly curated place for the church to intervene at the deepest, most darkest moments of a child's life. In my research of it, I, I found that there is a trend. 50% of the homeless population has had a run in foster care. 60% of those who have been human trafficked have had a run in foster care. 80% of inmates on death row have had a run in foster care. There's one story in particular when I was working for the sheriff's office that really marked me. I got this call that there was a two-year-old girl that was rumored to be living in a storage unit. I pulled up to, to the storage unit and I didn't have time to wait for law enforcement because of the urgency of the case. And uh, I literally kicked open the storage unit door. And when I opened the door, I saw something that really changed my whole perspective on the need, on foster care, on serving vulnerable children. When, I, when that storage unit door opened, I saw a two-year-old girl on the lap of someone who was clearly addicted to drugs. And I, I looked at this little girl. She had dirt on her face, and her head was on a swivel like this because she was traumatized. And I said to the man who was actually babysitting this little girl while the mother was out prostituting, I said to the man, I said, um, sir, I think we both know this isn't a safe environment for this little girl, this two-year-old. Um, and he looked at me and he said, I know, but it's my job. I got to watch this baby. I said, sir, please let me have this baby. I'll make sure that she's safe. And he gave the baby to me, and when I picked her up and I held her in my arms, that same little two-year-old stiff neck from constantly being on high alert melted like jello, and she put her head on my shoulder. She didn't know me. She didn't know my background. We hadn't had any prior relationship, but I look at it as there was something inside of me that she knew that she could trust and that was safe. And I attribute that to who Jesus is in my life. And I think that that's the opportunity with foster care. It dawned on me that if we can rally around this core issue that's written into our faith, if we can rally around this and begin 
to undo some of these hurts, not only would it save the life of children, not only would it repair brokenness in, in childhood, it would change our society. It would change the criminal rates in our communities. It would change homelessness. It would change this human trafficking ill that we deal with and we hear so much about simply because we gave attention to this people group when the trauma is the greatest. And we have the greatest solution to handle that trauma, which is Jesus. When I heard that story, you can share. Um, when I heard that story, I was freshly reminded of the need. And it would be easier for us to just, all right, can we just talk about something else? Can we get around this, not talk about this? Can we not focus on this? But that's not what we've been called to be as a church. City Rev, we're called to love this city. And to love the city means we go to the need. Now, there's so many ways to run towards the need. Um, for starters, the primary need is we need foster families. We need foster parents. We have, over the years, seen all over the last 15 years or so that we've uh, partnered with four kids. We've seen all different types of people. We've seen uh, single adults become foster parents. We've seen young married couples who haven't even started trying to have their own kids yet become foster parents. We've seen parents with kids that seem like they already have too many kids become foster parents. We've seen parents of teenagers that have brought their teenagers into the journey of fostering younger children. We've seen empty nesters who, when the rest of the world would say, you're done, you've made it, you've made it to the finish line, say, no, I'm done when Jesus says that I'm done. And they've stepped in to become foster parents. We've seen all different types of people in all different seasons of life step in in a time. Why? Why would they do that? There's always so many reasons to justify not stepping into the need. Why did they do that? Because they've been so loved by Jesus. They're not looking, they're not looking for ways to justify themselves. They're looking just to follow Jesus and to meet the need that's right in front of them. There's not everyone's called to be foster family. Certainly the you would need time to pray and explore and think about what that would look like. Not everyone's called to be a foster parent. At the same time, if there's a need before the church, it would seem like God is calling many, many more to step up, to respond. That's one way to engage. Another way is we have uh, groups called FAM that are the, the community in a church that when a foster family wraps up, this is the people that wrap around them and support them and help transport the children and make uh, meals. There's another thing you're going to be hearing more about in the next couple weeks called Care Portal. It's some of the most innovative ways that we can reach the needs in our city, that anyone can step in and reach the needs, and it's actually on the preventative side before foster care. And so all of that is to say this, um, today is just simply one challenge. Today is just simply the challenge to pray. Not only just pray for the need, but pray specifically asking God, how do you want me to react, respond to this need? Because if you've brought a need before us, brought a need before me, how do you want me to engage? That's simply the call for today. Here's what I know. Um, when the need is right 
before gospel-filled people. We have to respond. And so here's what uh, we've done to just give us a visual. Parked out front of uh, the Cooper City campus and parked right out these doors um, is a, uh, at the West Pines campus is a school bus. And that school bus um, seats 40 to 50 children. That's, and, and here's what I know. If I were to stand up, if we were to stand up as a church and we were to say, okay, these are all of the children. And if we're able to take all of those children and put them in a school bus and bring them before the church, if we were able to look at those children and say, hey, right now there's uh, 50 some odd children that need a home. And if we, City Rev, do not take these children into our homes, whatever children are left over, they will be going to a shelter. I know what would happen because I know City Rev. I know this church family. I know the genuine love for Jesus and love for God and love for people and love for children. I know the genuine love we have for the next generation, the genuine love. When we look at the next generation, we say, they need Jesus. We, we need to get Jesus to the next generation. I know what would happen. There would not be a child left on that school bus. I know that. And so the only challenge before us is not that there's not those 50 children. It's that we can't look into their traumatized eyes and be reminded of the need. But make no mistake, City Rev, there are school buses of children in Dade and Broward that need the church to rise up and show them love in their time of need. And I pray that City Rev is mightily used by God to answer that call to reach the children of our city. Here's the challenge. It's a call for the next two weeks just simply to pray and to surrender to God and say, God, what do you want me to do to, re to meet this need? So here's what I want you to do. Would everyone just take a second? Would you pull out your, your cell phone? Just take your cell phone out just for a second. I'm going to pull up on the screen. Um, we've got a, a QR code. We're just going to leave that up for just a minute. What I want you to do, you're not signing up to be a foster parent. You're not signing up to be uh, uh, sign up for Care Portal. Just scan this QR code. This is just so that you can say, I am committing to pray for the next two weeks, open-handed, God, what do you want me to do? And so what I want to challenge you, uh, husbands, wives, moms, dads, single uh, adults, retired adults, empty nesters, there's a, a way that each one of us can respond to the need. I just want to challenge you to commit to praying. When you press that send button, you're just saying, I commit to pray openly to Jesus. You direct me how to love those in, this, that in my city that have a need. Why would we do that? I'll close with this. Because you and I were the ones broken on the side of the road. And Jesus endangered himself took us on his back. He carried us. He was wounded so he could bind up our wounds. He spent it all so that we could have the treasures of heaven. And he died for us. 
and he returned on the third day. He rose up from the dead to save us. We were rescued, and he's calling us. He's left us here to go be rescuers in his name. Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord Jesus, we just, we just ask, we surrender to you. We ask that you would direct us. Lord, you are your first. We make ourselves available to you. And we just, whatever you ask, we will do because you are God. You are the Lord of our lives. So we surrender. What do you want us to do? There's a part that each of us can play. We commit to pray that you would direct us. But maybe you're here and you need to be rescued today. You say, I, I need to be forgiven. I'm the one who's been working and striving. I feel a million miles away from God. I, feel, I, I don't think I'm going to make it to heaven. Like if I was to die today, I don't think I'd make it. But Jesus suffered so greatly so that you could be saved. You can know for sure that you'll be in heaven one day. And I want to lead you in that prayer. If that's you, just silently in your seat. You can be rescued forever today to spend eternity adopted into God's family. You can be rescued today. Just simply make this your prayer. Just silently right there, just say, Jesus, I need to be rescued. I need a savior. I'm not gonna make it. I'm not good enough. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for what you did to save me. I'm yours. In Jesus' name, amen. If that was your prayer just then, if you put your faith in Jesus, I want you to go to cityrev.org faith. You can go there right now on your phone if you're watching online. You can do that if you're here as well. It's just going to ask you a couple questions so we can mail you a Bible. We want you to get to know your Savior and continue on this journey. If you're here at the West Pines campus in the front lobby, there's a place that you can get a Bible. Um, if you just want to ask at the, at the guest services table, say, I put my faith in Jesus, just go there and they'll put a Bible in your hands today. Church, we're going to close with a song. It's a prayer where we just tell God that we're available to him to whatever he calls us to. Let's make that our prayer to him today. Would you stand with me as we close? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.